Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is where we're going to be for the next bit of our time together. If you're using one of those pew Bibles I mentioned earlier, first, let me remind you, we want you to take it with you. That's our present to you. That's not just a rental. You can own it. And the second thing I'll say is that you'll find what we're going to look at this morning on page 897 of that hardback Bible in the pew in front of you. When we first began this series through 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, maybe three months ago almost, I promised you guys three things that you could expect from this series. I promised you first that it was going to be super practical. And not just because I'm a really super practical guy. I think you guys know better than that. But because this letter is super practical, it is right at ground level. That's what it's for. Paul was pastoring his friends through the the nitty-gritty details of real lives that they were living. And this letter covers a whole range of basic life topics. It's a letter about identity. It's a letter about conflict between people. It's a letter about what you can eat. It's a letter about marriage and singleness, about how to act at church, a letter about death and what comes after death. And you'll see throughout it, you've seen already, Paul's got a lot to say about life, a lot to say about real life. In our text this week and and the next couple of weeks, you'll say that Paul has a lot to say. You'll see that Paul has a lot to say about sex too. That's right. We're talking about sex today. So here we go. Second thing I promised you is that uh, in this letter, you notice a context that would seem really modern. I mean, we're used to, if, you're, if you've had any time at all in the Bible, and if you've covered any, if you've tasted of the vast range of material that's in there, you've noticed that a lot of it really does belong to another world, <laughs> a foreign culture and climate that, that it takes work to understand. It takes big uh, effort to, to bridge between our world and the world of the Bible often. But in, in Corinth, that's just not the case. The things that they're dealing with and the things that Paul is writing to sound remarkably modern to us if we learn to see what he's talking about. And I think what Paul teaches about sex in this passage is a fantastic example of that. And the Roman Empire was known for super permissive sexuality, especially for men. They saw sex as just an appetite, not something to stress over, not something to put too many rules around, just one of those things. And one of the things that kept Christianity weird in that time was Paul's teaching that sex is far more wonderful and far more dangerous than that. It isn't just one of those things. It's unique and powerful in a way that sets it apart from other appetites. That message is weird in our context too, just as weird today as it was then. And when marriage is at a historic low in terms of marriage rates and sexual experience has never been easier to come by than it is today in our culture. Uh, The third thing I promised you guys about this series is that issue by issue, topic by topic, in the nitty gritty of real life, Paul was going to show us how a Christian life, what Christians should do and shouldn't do, has everything to do with what Jesus has already done. A Christian life flows out of the message about Christ crucified and risen again. It's the gospel that shapes how we live. Not a bunch of arbitrary, shame-based regulations thrown onto us by people with the power to do it. At the heart of what Paul is telling these Christians in Corinth is a message about Jesus and the difference he makes for the lives that we're living. 
And at the heart of this text, the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is a message that Paul has for them about sleeping with prostitutes. Namely, you shouldn't do it. As a Christian, you shouldn't do that. That's the simple, straightforward message. But he didn't just leave it at that. He didn't just tell them, stop it. He shows them and he shows us what Jesus has to do with our sex lives. I want to begin by reading the text before we get into it together. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. While I pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter in verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I don't know if you noticed this. I didn't at first. It took me a few times through to see it. But this text works like a kind of sandwich. In the middle... You've got what Paul wants to tell them about the very specific thing he knows is going on there. You got a message about sex outside of marriage. But then on either side of that central message, Paul talks about a Christian's body, about how God sees their bodies, about what they should do with their bodies. In other words, to understand why sex outside marriage is such a big deal for Christians, you have to understand what your body means to God. And so to work through this passage this morning, I wanna do it in two steps. I wanna answer one question, the question that Paul has in his mind that he wants to answer for his friends, but I wanna answer it in two parts. The question is this, why is sex outside of marriage such a big deal for Christians? Wasn't a big deal in the Roman Empire. Isn't a big deal in most of our culture today. Why is it such a big deal for Christians? That's the question. I want to answer it in two parts. The first part coming from the bread of the sandwich. The first couple of verses we read, the last couple of verses we read. Answer part number one is simple. Sex outside marriage is a big deal for Christians because you belong to God who loves you. That's answer number one. You belong to God who loves you. That's why it's a big deal. 
See, before Paul can get to his point about sexuality, he has to confront a really big misunderstanding about the body that should sound super familiar to us today. Let me show you the misunderstanding he's correcting and then how he corrects it. Here's the misunderstanding. The misunderstanding they were living with in first century Corinth is basically this. My body belongs to me. It doesn't matter much anyway, so I can do what I want with it. There's the misunderstanding. My body belongs to me. Doesn't matter that much anyway, so I can do what I want with it. Body wants what a body wants. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, why not just go for it? What's the big deal? That's their misunderstanding. You can see it come through in the way Paul sets up this section. Did you notice in verses 12 and 13, we've actually got quote marks around some of the language that are in those verses. Those are not original to the text. That's, a, that's an editor who put together the translation flagging for us that what, what almost all, I think every commentator I read, every New Testament expert I've seen, believes was quotes that were coming to Paul from either a letter that the, the Corinthians had written to him or from some report that had been brought back to him from their, from their church, that they were, they were saying things like this. So he's, he's putting up their words and then knocking them down. And you can see what, what their words are, are, are communicating. All things are lawful for me. There's quote number one. That's something they believed. Uh, you know, you could almost see how they could get there from some of what Paul taught in his other letters and probably taught to them as he's working among Gentiles. He comes into a Gentile context, teaching them about G the Jewish past that included tons of laws and regulations about what you could eat and couldn't eat and what you could, what you could do when, feast laws and all sorts of stuff. And he's coming into these Gentile contexts saying, you don't have to be Jewish to be with Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled all of those old rules. Those rules had a purpose, it was a good purpose, and they served their purpose. Now, it's lawful for you to eat pork, for example. And so you can, you can almost see them taking that and running with it. All things are lawful for me. In other words, my body's mine. And Paul's like, ah, you know, all things are lawful for me. And there's a way in which that might be true, but not all things are helpful. That's not the only thing to pay attention to. There's a way in which it might be true, but I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. You're missing part of the picture that you need to see. I think what they were thinking comes through even more clearly in the next quote, verse 13. It's not crystal clear how far this quote goes. I think it probably goes halfway through the verse where the quote from them says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. You get the point, right? We're just tissue. We're just matter. And we're Greeks and Romans. We know matter doesn't matter. These bodies are unfortunate necessities for the lives that our soul is living right now. We'd rather be free of them than living in them. And you know, it's just a body. So it's got its appetites. It wants what it wants. Isn't gonna last? Why not just keep it happy? Like just give the body what it wants when it wants it and keep it happy so that we can carry on with the life of the mind and the soul. You're hungry, you eat. You got to relieve yourself, you go to the bathroom. When you feel attracted to someone, you have sex with them. The body does what the body does. That was their mentality. Can you see the misunderstanding they were living with? My body belongs to me. All things are lawful for me. My body doesn't matter that much anyway. It's food for the stomach, stomach for food. God's going to destroy them both. So, therefore, I can do whatever I want with it. My body, my choice. 
That's the misunderstanding Paul is working with. And from top to bottom, it assumes God is not in the picture. From top to bottom, at the root of that misunderstanding and all the way to the tip top of it, God is not in the picture. So let me show you how Paul corrects this misunderstanding. From top to bottom, God is central. From top to bottom, he puts God at the center. There are three layers to his response to this misunderstanding. Your body belongs to God, not to you. Your body matters to God. It's not pointless. So do what he wants with it. Your body belongs to God. Your body matters to God. So do what he wants with it. Let me, let me, let me show you these layers. Let me go deeper into, into his message. Layer number one is Paul tells him, your body belongs to God, not to you. You can see it in verses 13 and 14. And then again in verses 19 and 20. I mean, look at verse 13. He tells them, no, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. The body's meant for the Lord. In other words, it's his. It's, it's Psalm 100 that we read earlier in our service. He made us, we are his. Your body was meant for him. You can see it in verse 19. Your body, he says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, a, it belongs to the Holy Spirit. So, verse 19, you're not your own. Your body belongs to God, not to you. That's layer one. Layer two is, your body matters to God. It's important to him, which is to say, God loves you. He, he really loves you. Your body registers for him. I mean, to say that you belong to somebody else, that could, be, that could actually be super threatening. I mean, slavery is not a hypothetical situation. It's a real one. And it's terrible. And it was a reality in this time, just like it's a reality today. We have a category for belonging to someone and being at their disposal. A commodity to be bled dry for their purposes. A, a resource to be exploited. That could be what they're thinking when they hear him say, you're not your own, you belong to him. But what Paul makes really clear in these verses is that you belong to God, not as a resource for him to exploit, but as a treasure for him to cultivate and to protect. You belong to him not as a slave, but as a son or a daughter. Paul takes him right back to the gospel. Let me show you. This is amazing to me. Look at verse 14 with me. It's showing them that you matter to God. Your body is not just tissue that's going to pass away. He, he, he takes them through the whole scope of the gospel. Look at verse 14. Look at what God will do with your body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, your body is so important to God that his son took one on. All so that he could die and then rise again. And then one day raise your body up too. Your body might be breaking down now, but God is going to raise it up in the end. Your body matters to him. That's verse 14. Then look at verse 19. This is what God is doing with your body now. Verse 14 is what he's, he will do with it. Verse 19 is what he's doing with it now. Look what he says. Your body now is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. There was no more holy, no more sacred, no more beautiful place in all of Israel than the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what he's pulling from. And what he's saying is that that temple in all its beauty was just a pale reflection, just a shadow of what you are 
in your body now if you're a Christian. Just like the prophets predicted, God has put his own spirit inside of his people to make them holy and clean and new from the inside out. That is happening to you now, body and soul. Your body matters to him. He's gonna raise it up. He's right now renovating it as a house for himself. And then verse 20, look at what he's already done. He's pointing to what he will do. He's pointing to what he is doing. And then at verse 20, he wraps it off with what he's already done for our bodies. You are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought with a price. God paid for your body with the life of Jesus, his son, with his blood shed for you to pay the penalty your sin deserved. Your body matters to him like a lot. It matters to him. How do you know what something's worth? You know what something's worth by how much somebody's willing to pay for it. I used to be super into baseball cards back in the day, especially in the early 90s before the strike of 1994 ruined it for all of us. I used to have this, I used to get these magazines. I think it was called Beckett. Yeah, Kevin's back there shaking his head. He knows what I'm talking about. Beckett, they'd put them out every month just so they could keep bleeding you dry. And it would have the updated values of all your cards. And we'd all stress over them and use that to help trade, you know, back and forth. Some of them were worth quite a lot even then. Hundreds or even thousands of dollars. Last year, a new record was set. You know, a a baseball card of Mickey Mantle from 1952 sold last year for $12 million. It wasn't made of gold. It's paper. It's got a picture on one side and stats on the other side. Why was that card worth that much money? I'll tell you why. There's only one reason. Somebody was willing to pay that much money for it. That's why it was worth that much money. Your body matters to God. How much is your body worth? To God, it's worth what he paid for it. Your body belongs to God. Your body matters to God. So, layer three, do what he wants with it. You see that? That's the last line of the chapter. Glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. So it should be obvious. Glorify him with your body. Aim your body at his agenda. Do what pleases him with your body. It is his. It is precious to him. He knows what's best. He wants that for you. So do what glorifies him with your body. Pretty straightforward. So if you're here this morning, you're considering Christianity exploring what we believe about things. I hope you can see so far already from this text, there's some big misconceptions out there about how Christians view the body. Maybe you've heard that Christians just care about souls. Maybe you've heard that we're kind of ashamed of the fact that we're stuck walking around in these hunks of flesh. I hope you can see that, I mean, even if that's been true of certain people, maybe even somebody you've known, it's not true of our our origins of these texts that are meant to guide us. Our authority is in this word and that's not how the Bible describes the body. In fact, you 
you won't find a more body positive posture than Paul's posture. What he's telling us is that those who do trust in Christ, those who recognize they have a sin problem they can't solve, that they deserve to be punished for disobeying the God who made them, and that Jesus has offered to take that punishment for them so they cling to him. Those who are Christians, they have a body that's destined for eternal life. They have a body that we believe is a current, present, real dwelling place for God. (laughs) And they have a body that was paid for at the cost of his only son. I know that might sound crazy. But you, at the very, you can call us crazy, but you can't say we're down on bodies because we're not. We actually think bodies are wonderful gifts from God that matter to him and therefore to us. You know, it's actually, it's when you take God out of the picture that I just can't, I really can't see where you can come up with a body positive posture. Maybe you have one and I'm not, say, I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying I can't see how you get there if God's not in the picture for you. I mean, without God in the picture, we got here by accident, right? At the tail end of just a really long series of random mutations. And without God in the picture, we're not here very long, are we? And much of the time that we are here where these bodies are breaking down, at least half of the time, they're going to be breaking down on us. And eventually, without God in the picture, these bodies just end up in the ground, wasting away from dust to dust. And yeah, maybe that sounds to you like that, that, that means we may as well do whatever we want to with them in the meantime. But, but if you can get there, you realize it's only because your body isn't actually worth that much to you. Who's body positive, really? I mean, I can do whatever I want with the cardboard boxes Amazon sends to me. I can repurpose them for gifts, packaging. I can recycle them if I remember to. I can use them to block weeds in a flower bed. I can toss them on a fire pit for extra fuel. I can do whatever I want with them because they're cardboard. Who cares? Is that how you want to feel about your body? Do you have a good reason not to? To be a Christian does come with rules from God about what we can and can't do with these bodies that we live in. But those, those rules don't amount to a desire for repression based in shame about these bodies that we have. Those rules come from a desire for protection based on love for these bodies that we have. Now, my Christian friends, when we're thinking clearly, when we're thinking biblically about our bodies, we know that we belong to God And we take that for comfort, not for a threat. When we're thinking clearly, when we're thinking biblically, we know we belong to God. We're not our own. But that comforts us. That doesn't threaten us. One of my favorite summaries of the gospel that's ever been written comes in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism from several hundred years ago. The question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer will sound a whole lot like 1 Corinthians 6. Here it is. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to belong to Jesus Christ? 
The answer continues. It means he's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That's what it means to belong to him. It means that he has set me free from all the power of the devil. That's what it means to belong to him. It means that he preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. That's what it means to belong to him. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and then makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. Why wouldn't I be if I belong to him? And that's what it means. What does it mean to glorify God in your body? Like verse 20 says. Well, I mean... definitely at at one level, it means don't neglect it. Don't abuse it. Don't live in it like you might use a company car that you know isn't yours and you're not gonna have to repair and you're just gonna turn in at the end of the lease anyway. Don't live like that in your body. But but glorifying God in your body, it doesn't, it's, it's not about chiseled abs and ultra marathons, you know? I mean, God doesn't care how far you can run. He never said anything about that. I think glorifying God in your body means aiming your body at the things he says are good that you can't do without a body. And you know what might be an interesting application of this passage right here would be for you to take some time in the next week to browse through the New Testament and look for every command you can find there and look at how necessary your body is to obey it. What does it look like to glorify God in your body? might look like making something beautiful in his name. It might look like using your body to hug a friend who's rejoicing or hug a friend who's mourning because we rejoice and mourn together and it takes a body to do that. It might look like using your body to make a meal for someone who needs a meal. It might look like you showing up for somebody who needs you even though you're tired and you'd rather be asleep. Glorifying God with your body might mean actually going to sleep and acknowledging that he made you with limits he doesn't have. And when you sleep, he stays awake. So you can glorify him by trusting him with accepting your limits and taking a nap. Glorifying God with your body might look like eating good food and knowing he gave it to you. It might look like using your eyes to to look around this wonderful world that he made and actually pay attention to it so he gets glory for it. Have you ever stared at a flower petal and just taken a second to notice the color, the shade, the patterns, the texture? It's glorious. Use your eyes. Use your hands to glorify him as you engage his world. It might look like listening well, using those ears to listen right now to this word so you can share it with somebody else, to listen to your friend who needs to talk. It might look like using your mouth to share this word with friends who need encouragement or who don't have the hope of, God, of the gospel. You, you know, you're using your body to glorify God every time you show up for a gathering like this one. It takes a body to be here. We are embodied creatures. That's why the New Testament commands us every week, come back, come back, come back. Don't forsake assembling together. That's a, that's a command you can only obey with your body. You are glorifying God right now with your body by being here. So great work. Show up again next week. We need you there too. You see what I mean? It's, if you start thinking about it, 
And just basic obedience is typically going to be glorifying God with your body. So lean into it and get creative about it. Use your body in ways that please God and avoid anything that doesn't. Which brings us to the second part of our answer. You know, we've been talking this whole time about bodies because we're really talking this whole time about sex outside of marriage. That's what Paul wants to address. But to do that, he's got to talk about bodies because they're involved. We've asked one big question. Why is sex outside marriage such a big deal for Christians? And the first part of our answer is because you belong to God who loves you. It matters because you have to use a body that matters to him. And he cares about how you use that. Here's the second part of our answer. Why is sex outside marriage such a big deal for Christians? Because you belong to God who loves you. And sex affects you deeply. That's the simple second part of our answer. Sex affects you deeply. Sex matters to God because you matter to God. And for good or ill, your sex life has huge effects on you and on others. That's the punchline of what Paul's teaching about sex outside marriage. In between the the bread of his words about bodies, he has this to say about our sex lives. I'm picking up in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There are a lot of mysterious things in those few verses and some big questions I have about the details that I can't fully answer. Let me just admit that up front. But the main point of this text, I think is actually really clear and we need to hear it. I think to get that main point, the first thing you need to do is know what he's talking about when he talks about prostitution. For Paul right here, he's not, he's not meaning to zero in on that one type of sexual sin. But in his world, prostitution was a stand-in for any sex outside of marriage because that's how you would have sex outside of marriage in first century Roman world. Uh, the long-term singleness uh, and a hookup culture like we have now wasn't a thing back then. So if you wanted to have sex outside of a marriage, it was probably going to be the man who was doing it and it was going to be with a prostitute. So Paul is is talking now about that bigger picture of sex outside marriage, not the more specific picture of of prostitution as a system of exploitation and and, and why it's wrong. So he's not going to say everything you would want to hear him say and that he would have to say about prostitution. He's talking about sex outside marriage. And so that's what we'll talk about. Now, I've said, I I think Paul's message for all the questions I have and you may have about some of the details in these verses, his message is really clear. Do you remember what they were saying? They were just saying, you know what? Food's for the stomach. Stomach's for food. God's going to destroy them both. It's just natural appetites that need to be fed. So when Paul raised that quote about food in verse 13, he quickly made it clear he had sex, not food on his mind. Because he says, when he's correcting it, no, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. 
Having sex is not like eating dinner. It definitely involves your body just like eating does, but it affects you differently in a mysterious and powerful and inexplicable but undeniable way. It affects you. No matter what you might say about a delicious meal, there is no new recipe and no bite of cake that ever really changed your life. But sex is meant to. That's exactly what sex is meant to do. That's what he's getting at in verse 16 when he quotes from Genesis 2 on the purpose of sex inside marriage. He says, when you sleep with a prostitute, you become one body or one flesh with her. And it's not only the literal physical union that, it, that, that, that happens when two bodies have sex. God designed this union to be deeper than that. It, it, it's meant to fuse two people together into something new. That's why he's quoting from Genesis 2 here where God said the man and the woman would, would leave their father and mother and then cleave to one another. The two shall become one flesh. In other words, before they identified as part of those families that they belonged to. Now they identify as part of a new family created under God. Now they belong to one another. Now they are different than they once were. And the two shall become one flesh. In other words, sex is a tool designed by God to make the ideal of marriage a reality in marriage. If the ideal is to form something new, a new identity together, sex helps make it happen. And if that's what sex is meant to be, you just can't have sex and independence. You can't have both. You can't have sex and independence. The whole purpose of it is giving up independence. The whole purpose is to be fused into something new. Sex is designed by God as a way of saying to another person, I want you more than I want freedom. It's, a, it's how you say with your body, I belong to you completely. Every part of me, it's yours. Sex without commitment, which is really what they were wanting, is just an enacted lie. Saying you can have sex with no strings attached from Paul's perspective. It's just ridiculous. Sex is the string. Do you see that? There's no such thing as no strings attached because it is the string. That's what it's for. And it affects us deeply because that's what it was made to do. Whether we mean for it to affect us or not, it does. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to in verse 18. Look back at verse 18, where he says that, that every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? I mean, it's not, I don't think he means to say that there's no other sin that affects your body. Clearly, that's not true, right? I mean, uh, gluttony affects your body. Drunkenness affects your body. If you commit suicide, that's a sin against your body. Taking a life that belongs to God. But what he's saying is that sex is different from all those things. A lot of things you can do that are sinful affect your body. But sex does so on a totally different level, so much so that he's able to say every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but this one sins against its body. Somebody has described sex as kind of like fire where in the right place, you know, in a fireplace, in a house, it's great. It warms the house. It brings comfort and ambiance to the house. But a fire in your attic is a different story. It's powerful no matter where it is. Where it is, 
determines whether its power is used for good or for evil. It is good at what God made it to do. It does fuse two people at a deep level, whether you mean for it to or not. I heard someone compare the effects of sex to something like, like two pieces of construction paper that glued together if you, when you pull them apart. Like bits and pieces of each piece are going to be on the other one, no matter what. It, it does affect you in a way that's lasting. If you've experienced this sin, you know what I'm talking about. You don't need me to tell you. It's an encounter that changes us. All of which is to say, sex is just far more wonderful than our culture recognizes and far more dangerous. And that's why it's such a big deal. For Christians. That's why the core command in these verses from Paul for his friends, living as if it doesn't matter at all, is so simple and so strong. His command, verse 18, is flee. 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 Run away. Friends, I want to take the last few minutes I've got to simply encourage you to flee from sexual sin and to flee to Christ. I think a good way to reflect on this passage for you this afternoon would be to consider what it would look like for you and your stage and your situation of life to obey it. What would it look like for you to flee? Maybe, friend, maybe you need to hear me say right now, if you're a Christian, and you're engaging in sexual behavior with somebody you're not married to. God is telling you in his word right now, stop it, stop, stop, flee. I know it may not seem like a big deal right now. I know it may even seem wonderful because you care about the person that you're sleeping with, even if you haven't committed your life to them. But whatever it feels like now, it won't feel that way later. This command is good. Beyond the harm that, that, that this sin will do to you and maybe to the person you're sleeping with, you need to know that this, it's just incompatible with faith in Christ. Paul sees sex as a matter of allegiance. Did you notice that? How could you have, join a member of uh, someone who belongs to Christ to, to a prostitute? It's either or. You belong to Jesus or you don't. And don't forget what was said last week in the first half of, cha of chapter six about those who, who give in to sexual immorality and don't care about that. It's political. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. Friend, don't let that be you. It's not worth it. Flee. Maybe you need to flee with your eyes. Maybe you have brought into your home or into your, into your vision, into your regular habits, material that is drawing you towards sex outside marriage and not causing you to flee. Maybe that means you need to confess to somebody today a pornography addiction that you can't shake. Maybe that means that you need to rethink the subscription services that you're using because of how you're using them. But much sin, much grievous wrong has started with a look. Jesus said, the one who lusts after a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Think about David, who saw a woman bathing. He looked too long. And it led to him exploiting her. It led to the death of their child. It led to his murder of her husband. It led to him abandoning in that time his commitment to the God who had made him king. Be careful what you look at. Be careful while you're young. Let me talk for just a minute here to those of you who are in our, in our youth group. Guys, I know you're, you're now at a stage in your life where the probably more and more the kids that you're around in school or wherever, on, on whatever teams you're on, I mean, they're gonna talk about sex more and more, often joke about sex more and more, often treat it kind of like it's no big deal. And it may, you may wonder if that's the world that you're living in for with a lot of your time, why does it seem like such a big deal at church? And I want you to know from this text, hopefully it's clear to you by now, the reason we're so serious about only having sex inside marriage is not we're ashamed of it. It's not that we're embarrassed about it. It's because we value it so much. It's because something so valuable as this is worth protecting. There are friends all over this room who can tell you how destructive it is when you go beyond God's rules for sex, how much pain it has caused them, how much damage it has done in their lives. And we don't want that for you. We want you to know now what we don't want you to have to learn the hard way, that you can trust God with his rules. They are good, they are for you. He's not trying to ruin your life, he's trying to protect you because he loves you. Flee now while you're young. And friends, flee to Christ. We have to end there. This is all rooted in the gospel. Everything Paul is saying, he says because of who Jesus is to those who trust him. Jesus is one whose blood makes you clean. Do you remember the end of of, of last week, verse 11? Such were some of you, (laughs) such were some of us. I know this room is full right now of the walking wounded. I know that might be you. This might have been the hardest sermon you've had to listen to in a long time because you can't stop thinking about how you have learned the hard way, how true all of this really is. Friend, if that's you, you are not what you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the spirit of our God. That is who you are. And if you're caught up in sexual sin today and you can't imagine being free, then let me tell you, you are surrounded right now by sexual sinners who have no hope to Jesus and no ground to stand on to look down on you or anybody else. And if you will come and talk to one of us about this today, this could be the day your freedom begins because sin thrives in the dark and it dies in the light. And perhaps that's true of of nowhere more clearly than sexual sin, where there's so much shame involved and so much fear about being seen and known. You do not have to be afraid in this church. I have seen it so many times, and it's so beautiful to see. When friends in this church open up to each other about sexual sin, they find allies, not judges. They find grace, not condemnation. They find help for real change. And it's available to you today. 
And I'd love the chance to talk to you about it. Let's pray that the Lord will help us to love his ways and to trust him. Oh, Father, we thank you for all you have done to purchase us, to sanctify us, and to guarantee our promises of a new future and new bodies that will live forever. We want to live now as if that's who we are, and we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.